Welcome to today's podcast on why good people do bad things. Behavior psychology teaches us that people often make poor decisions under strained circumstances, and the role altruistic cheating, self-deception, and rationalization can have in influencing our behavior. A company's risk culture also plays a role in our ethical decisions based on how employees view the company's values compared to their own personal ethics and on how employees understand their obligations and carry them out. In this podcast, Rain Serena Vash sits down with Rushmi Aaron. Rushmi began her career in national law firms and later as a government attorney. While running her own legal practice, one of Rushmi's developer clients engaged in illegal business practices in late 2015. She served six months of a year and a half a day sentence, an experience and lesson she now shares boldly with the world. It is her mission to share the need for ethical vigilance and to inspire you to make good ethical choices in all areas of your life. Rushmi is a keynote speaker and consultant fighting to create a culture of conversation and bring ethical issues in business, in business to light, to promote integrity, enhance commitment to fiduciary duty, and shift the paradigm of ethics standards through ethics training. I'll now turn it over to Rain's Serena Vash. Serena? Thanks, Greg, and welcome, Rushmi, to our podcast. Thank you. Rushmi, um, you and I have had an opportunity to get to know each other over the last couple of years um, and to speak on a number of panels. The first uh, was back at NYU Law School in November of 2016. And when I first met you, um, you came into my office to talk about creating this panel together. And the minute I saw you, I thought to myself, she's me. And I knew why you were there to talk to me, and where your journey had led you over time. Um, And our synergies were such that I, as a former federal prosecutor, and you, as a former lawyer, and also someone who had been a criminal defendant, had come together and decided to say, what lessons can we teach people about how you can start on one path, you can take certain steps, mean and intend to do the right thing, and somehow take one small step into the gray, and then another, and another, and another, something that I have called wading into the gray. So, to begin this um, call today, to begin our podcast today, I'd like to talk to you about um, your history of becoming a lawyer and how you started to work with this real estate developer and how you began to take that one small step into the gray that led you onto the journey that you now speak of boldly, as Greg has said. So let's talk a little bit about your history and then about how you met this developer. Okay, great. Thank you so much to Rain Network for having me on and to Serena for your years of friendship and, um, and guidance in this area. So I began my career um, early on. I started out in Miami um, as a young student and uh, after graduating from high school, went on to UNC Chapel Hill for, for four years and then uh, actually had a stint on Wall Street for two years in investment banking at Morgan Stanley. Um, and after the banking world, I ended up starting law school at Columbia Law School uh, right there in New York City, uh, where I graduated um, Kent Scholar top of my class and went on to work in San Francisco for Orrick Harrington and Sutcliffe uh, in the litigation department. Uh, and after quickly realizing that San Francisco was just way too far from home, I came home back to Miami and worked at a small litigation boutique 
uh, Zuckerman's Bader, and then ended up working for the government, uh, for the county government, uh, in their um, civil side, working for the commissioners and the mayor, where I stayed for a few years, uh, and then soon quickly realized that I'm more of an entrepreneur and really uh, wanted to, to be more vested in my own business and um, building my own business. So I left and I started my own title company in 2004, early 2004, uh, and really kind of hit the pavement running and uh, was really committed to providing for my children and and of course I had set certain goals for myself uh, and so as as time went by and the market began to heat up in 2007 I was given the opportunity to meet a real estate developer which um, you know in hindsight I've been able to go back and and recognize that I desperately wanted to have that big client because as a solo practitioner that meant so many things not the least of which meant financial stability. Uh, and more time for my children, but also obviously recognition and appearances and credibility. So uh, I, I jumped at the opportunity and I met with this developer in October of 2007. And, you know, in hindsight, I've been able to go back and think through inflection points and different influences and moments where there were some red flags and I could have made different choices. So uh, the, I remember the day that I met this developer we were sitting around in a conference room and he asked me to begin to engage in what other developers, frankly, across the country were doing in terms of something similar, uh, which was incentivizing buyers to buy uh, condominium units condominium units throughout South Florida as there was an influx of inventory and he was trying to move his units uh, and get them sold. So even though, you know, in my gut, something felt like, okay, this is kind of in the gray and this is sort of... Um, maybe it's not necessarily right to, to incentivize. I, I, I made a lot of assumptions and I, I rationalized really all those concerns away by, uh, to the point, frankly, where they dissipated. Um, and so whatever concerns I did have um, were gone so that by the time I started working with this developer, which frankly was only two weeks later when I got my first uh, closing request, uh, it, it was like a steamroll effect. It just it just snowballed, and it was so fast, and it was like, you know, moving around. It's like when you're moving around a race course, and you're just moving so fast, you just can't even get off because it was so um, – I was so focused on a goal and trying to reach that goal. Uh, I'd never really allowed myself the time to stop and, and, and reflect and think through uh, not only what my gut was telling me, but, um, you know, whether it was legal or not, whether it was ethical or not. Uh, I just assumed it was without doing my own due diligence. So uh, that's the story of how I met the developer. And then, you know, we can talk a little further down the road about what happened. Okay. So can you, um, can you talk a little bit about where you were personally in your life when you met this particular developer? What, what was going on for you? Sure. It was a really difficult time. It was um, when I met the developer, October 2007, my children were uh, just under two and three years old. So I had uh, a son who had just about to turn three and my daughter um, was about a year and a half, a year and three months, and, uh, sorry, a year and three quarters. And she um, was a little difficult, challenging of a child, but you know, having two kids, it's almost like having Irish twins. Of course, as a young entrepreneur woman trying to run her own business, I wore many hats, you know, including running my business, um, in all facets, marketing, advertising, operations, financials, closings, but also trying to be a mom and doing the best I could for my for my kids. Uh, and then, in addition to that, you know, my husband and I, my husband at the time, uh, we were starting to have some marital problems, and 
you know, so I was facing those challenges as well. Uh, and I had um, a, a sister who is a year younger than I am, but she had been suffering from mental illness and um, sadly actually still continues to, but there was a lot of pressure, I think, within the family as well, um, just ha- trying to handle those emotional pressures and financial restraints um, that that put upon the family. And so that uh, was another strain that we had in our family. Um, so, you know, just running your own business, I think, as a young a mother is challenging um, always uh, because there's just so many pressures and influences that we feel uh, that all now I recognize all influence our decisions. But at the time, I was not um, I was not aware that that's what was happening. So talk a little bit about um, what actions led ultimately to your federal conviction. So talk a little bit about. Um, what happened with this developer and, and what were some of the things that uh, went on in terms of the closing, the real estate closings that you worked on? Okay, so uh, as I mentioned, I began to work with this developer pretty quickly. And what he was doing was he was, uh, through a rental guarantee document, he was incentivizing buyers to buy his units where, like, the buyers would get a... Um, a particular amount after closing uh, that was documented through this rental guarantee, and and it was and it was supposed to manage uh, or take care of two years of mortgage payments um, through a management company that was going to be renting the unit. Uh, so I would execute the closings, and and the closings themselves were pretty straightforward. Uh, any documentation that needed to be done as to the rental guarantee was done with the underwriter and. Um, Everything was being dispersed through a trust, land trust, which was just another way of, frankly, making it more gray uh, and creating more documents. And, you know, back then I thought, well, it's documented and the lender has it in its hand. He can ask me or she can ask me, what is this? Um, and, I, and I really, you know, the disclosure side of what I was doing, uh, I, I took very lightly. I didn't recognize that um, no matter what, whatever information I knew, I had to put forward and be transparent. And that was not occurring at the time. So uh, I did about 100 closings for this developer from end of 2007 to beginning of 2009. So probably about a 14 month period. Uh, and then I stopped working with this developer altogether. Uh, fast forward uh, in 2013, uh, sorry, in 2011, the FBI knocked on my door. Uh, and at the time, by then I was, uh, had a different practice altogether. I was working with my father as my partner who had been practicing for many years. And, and interestingly, we were representing the banks and mortgage servicers and Fannie and Freddie, and we were doing bank foreclosures for you know, large entities uh, in Florida. And so when the FBI knocked on my door, I let them in and I spoke to them. Uh, there were two agents. I spoke to them for four hours at a conference room table in my office and, and answered many, many questions about pictures and documents and all sorts of things that they were asking me as if I actually remembered definitively what had happened four years ago. And when I look back at that moment, I think, gosh, how could an educated lawyer like me have, have let the FBI in without an attorney present? And the thing is that nobody teaches you in law school or elsewhere, frankly, unless unless maybe you've been in the criminal defense field as an attorney, or maybe you've been touched by uh, some sort of um, criminal indictment or process because of a family or friend, uh, you don't really know that when the FBI comes to your door, you actually can get their card and say, can I call you back with my attorney present? Because at least for me, human nature kind of kicked in and said, 
because I convinced myself and rationalized and truly believed I hadn't done anything wrong at the time. So I thought to myself, well, I haven't done anything wrong and I want to be as transparent as possible. And so, yeah, I'm going to let them in. I'm going to talk to them. I will answer all their questions because I have nothing to hide. Because if I don't, then then they'll suspect that I did do something wrong. So um, after so about four hours, they I'm sorry. Let's 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 stop a second and and talk a little bit about that because you you are you're a, a Columbia Law School grad. You were a, a Kent scholar. Am I right about that? That's right. And here you are, um, a successful woman in Miami, having the FBI knock on your door. So let's talk for just a second about what that's like, how that felt, <laughs> what you were thinking about when you um, when you realized who was there to speak to you and and then just just drill down a little bit more on why you spoke to them so what was I thinking I was thinking I was scared very clearly um, and I didn't quite understand the reach of the federal government at the time and so there was this level of um, cloud that I was trying to put over the whole thing, even, you know, in terms of how I answered the questions, because I didn't really remember some of the answers or some of the people or some of the documents that were being shown to me, but yet I felt the pressure or the need to answer as if I did remember. Uh, and, and, I, and I really just didn't think anything of it. I didn't think that the government would then check on my answers and, you know, come back and verify or challenge the answers that I had given. Uh, and I, I would say, was probably pretty flippant about it, and didn't take it as seriously as I should have. And, um, and I was really, really convinced at the time that I should talk to the FBI because I haven't done anything wrong, and I need to be uh, forthright with them. You know, the governmental entity coming into my office, and so it's sort of an oxy, like it's, it's twofold, right? One, on the one hand, I didn't understand the reach of the government. On the other hand, um, I, you know, I was kind of scared and felt like I had to keep talking. So, um, so that's what was going on in my head in terms of what was happening and, and, and why I spoke to them so openly and quickly. And uh, I remember when they left, first of all, I never expected them to be there four hours. You know, I kind of thought they were going to ask me a few questions and leave. And I remember they arrived at like two on in an after one afternoon and they left. It was like six something. And immediately I picked up the phone afterwards and I called one of my mentors who actually happens to be a former U S attorney uh, for the Southern district. And he said, well, first he berated me for <laughs> having talked to the FBI without an attorney president. And then he said, you know, we need to do a debriefing because I need to, just in case, let's get it all down so you don't forget anything. Um, so I remember I met with him and, you know, we kind of documented everything just to the best of my recollection. So I could uh, try to get a sense of, or he could get a sense of what was the purpose of their, of their visit. And you didn't hear from them again for a while. Am I right? Right. I didn't hear from them for two, for two years. I mean, they left me with a grand jury, not grand jury, sorry. They left me with a subpoena for documents in 2011 when they came, which I, it was like maybe for 20 or so of my closing files. So I remember when I submitted them, um, I think I submitted them by hard copy. I like printed them from our yeah. you know, scanning company that used to save our documents. So I printed them and I put them in boxes and I sent it. 
And then nothing happened. And two years later is when I got the grand jury subpoena about probably 25 months later. And uh, once the grand jury subpoena came, it, it was also accompanied by a grand jury for, subpoena for documents. And then um, pretty quickly, I would say within three or four months, uh, we were able to recognize that I was a target of the investigation. And ultimately you were charged, am I right? Yes. So the, okay. you know, I have to say, I have to give the prosecutor credit because he really did try to get me to come in and talk to him and he was going to work with me and you know, at the time, I just was so convinced that I hadn't done anything wrong that I, I kept saying, but I can't go talk to him on principle. I don't know anything. Um, so that was, I got the grand jury subpoena in June 2013. By February 2014, I was indicted. So almost seven years after I met the developer um, is when I was indicted, six and a half years. What were the charges that you were indicted on, Rashmi? I was indicted for one count of conspiracy to commit bank fraud and 23 counts of bank fraud, uh, each of which was related to um, specific closing files. Um, but they, I'm not really sure how they chose those 23, but it was 23 out of the 100 plus that I had done for this developer. Can you talk a little bit about the process that you went through in going from a place where you thought, hey, I'm going to talk to the FBI. I haven't done anything wrong. I don't have anything to hide. And um, and the place where you ultimately actually pled guilty um, yes. for mortgage fraud. So talk sure. about how you got from, I didn't, you know, I don't think I did anything wrong here to, you know what, Your Honor, I committed mortgage fraud. Yeah, it was a long process and very, uh, you know, definitely one of the hardest things I've had to do. I um, initially, when I was indicted, I pled not guilty and, I remember for about five months, once the discovery came in uh, and my attorney received it, we, I made the decision that I was going, this was something I was going to also work on day in and day out because it was my whole life. You know, it was everything I worked so hard for. So I remember I would, I printed out 200,000 pages of discovery and 15,000 emails and I uh, had them in boxes and we shocked them up in my mom's house in one of the bedrooms and uh, and she, thankfully, she lives across the street, so I had you know easy easy access. And I would drop the kids off in the morning to school, and I would go to her house, and I would spend the whole day working on my own case and discovery. And periodically, every few weeks, I would meet with my attorney um, and his associate, or her, uh, you know, or his associate, and we would go over you know, various documents that I found that I thought were relevant um, or damning or you know good for me. And that went on for many months. Um, and I would say five months in, in August, uh, my attorney called me and my parents in for a meeting. So we, it was August 13th, 2014. And we walked in into the conference room and um, David, my attorney and his associate, Margot, proceeded to give us a presentation. Now, you have to understand, like we walked in thinking we were about to start trial prep because trial was scheduled for December and we're here we are mid August. Uh, and so that was the mindset with which, with, with which we had gone in to start thinking through strategy and exhibits and, you know, line of defense and all of that. And uh, once we went in, uh, my attorney and his associate proceeded to give a presentation on PowerPoint, you know, a whole presentation on uh, what would happen at trial, essentially what the government's case would be, what, in the, what the counts are, that I was charged with, what are the, 
what did they have to prove for each count, and then what our defenses would be and which evidence we would use for those defenses. And then they came back and said, okay, what well, based on our defenses, this is how the government's going to counter rebut. This is how they, they will rebut our evidence and with other evidence. And that was when um, the whole feeling in the, in the conference room, I remember, changed. And it was horrible. I mean, my dad, I remember, um, he's very emotional. And you know, he got up like six times periodically to go get up and, quote, use the bathroom. But it was pretty clear he was, you know, crying. And my attorney, who happens to be a dear friend as well, said, ultimately, he said, you know, Rashmi, I know you think you didn't do anything wrong. And I believe you that you believed you didn't do anything wrong. But here's the thing you did. And you were rationalizing in the moment. And you, you know, were, were basically turning a blind eye to what was going on around you. But you knew enough uh, you knew enough that it was wrong, but you also knew enough that you could have asked more questions to get a true sense of everything else that was going on. Uh, and he put up, I remember he put up two specific jury instructions that would have been relevant to my case, which absolutely um, at trial the government would have put, been, would have put up. And one was for uh, conspiracy. And of course, a conspiracy jury instruction uh, is purposely vague and says, um, essentially says that if the defendant knows you know, even one out of a million details, that's enough to convict. And the second was willful blindness. And, you know, the willful blindness um, jury instruction uh, does not does not allow somebody like me to purposely be, be blind to what's going on around me and, and claim that I didn't know anything, um, and claim that I was innocent. Uh, and I had to really accept that that's what I had done. Uh, I actually now believe it's called motivational blindness in my sense because I was so busy steamrolling towards a goal that I wasn't even ready to acknowledge or take in information that was sitting right in front of me, facts that were right in front of me that I could have paid more attention to because I just didn't allow myself to because I was so stuck in that, you know, blind state. But um, anyway, so he, he said, Rush, I know you think you didn't do anything wrong, but you did. And, you know, if you go to trial, you will probably lose. And, you know, you're my client, so if you tell me you still want to go to trial, that's what we'll do. But I'm telling you as a friend and as your attorney that if you go to trial, you're going to lose and you're facing 20 years in prison. And, you know, this is no joke. This is your whole life. These are your kids' whole lives. You'll never be able to see them graduate from high school or college or get married and have babies. And, and you know, that was really what struck me. Um, so... He said, I love you too much to let you go to trial. I really want you to consider pleading guilty. So it took a few days. I mean, I really, I had, it was like taking off the fighting hat and completely putting on a different hat and recognizing in my gut that I had to own it. Um, and what he, what really got me is he said, you're going to have to have a coming to Jesus moment. You know, you're really going to have to recognize that you, um, you that you did something and you got to own it. Um, so about, a, you know, I would say about a week later, I agreed to plea and a few weeks later, I met with the prosecutor and about nine FBI agents um, debriefing me. So let's stop, stop here and go back a little bit. You talked about your dad and your mom being in the room when you were going through uh, the evidence, to the government's evidence in the case against mm -hmm. you with your lawyer. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about your background um, and the way you were raised and how, if at all, that played into um, your, who you were and what you were trying to achieve? Um, sure. So I, um, 
I was raised in a in an Indian home in Miami. Uh, I grew up. I was ra- actually born in North Carolina, and my parents come from a very I would say most Indian families, but certainly my family come is a very um, highly educated, uh, highly motivated family. You know, with high ambition and um, very involved in our community. We always gave back. And my parents have been in, been past presidents or currently are presidents of Rotary Club and Zanta Club and all sorts of um, various community service organizations. So I was always raised to give back. Uh, but the pressure of that cultural level of achievement uh, that they had worked so hard to, to get to, you know, that American dream was something that was instilled within me at a very early age. But also, I think I put a lot of pressure on myself to be, um, you know, to be that perfect child. And uh, so my background is that my grandfather, my dad's father, paternal grandfather, was a freedom fighter uh, during the Quit India movement with Mahatma Gandhi uh, and actually was in prison with Gandhi on the day my father was born. So uh, I've been raised with this legacy of always doing the right thing and fighting for what you believe is right, no matter what, no matter if you believe you're going to achieve your goals in the end. And, you know, I, I think that I grew up really with those values instilled within me and I learned them early on. And so I was that child that followed the straight and narrow path and I always colored between the lines and I desperately wanted to follow the rules and make my parents proud of me and, you know, achieve all that cultural dream, all those cultural dreams that my parents came here to get to. And somewhere I just went off path. And and I think it just, it's, you know, like many other people, I grew up and set goals and I was so stuck on autopilot that I wasn't even willing to, or I didn't allow myself the time to start reflecting and thinking through the morality and the consequences of what I was doing. I was just, just stuck on doing and moving on to the next task at hand. And I think it's just so common for all of us, no matter what our pressures and family pressures to, to fall in that, um, rut where it's it's just so easy to make a quick decision or less complicated decision where we don't dot our I's and we don't cross our T's because we just want to get the decision or, you know, job done so we can move on to the next one so that we can check off our list of things to do so we can get home and be with our families and or get to the gym or take care of our sick mother, you know, pick up our child from a sports practice or, you know, there's so many other pressures that we don't recognize they're all linked and they all affect our decisions that we make in every aspect of our lives, not just work, really. And you and I have talked about the issue of sort of what question are you asking? Are you asking the question of how do I get this done? Um, because you can answer that question, how do I get this done, in a myriad ways. Um, but maybe that's not the right question. Maybe the right question, as you and I have talked about before, is should I be doing this at all? Um, so how, let's talk a little bit about some of the factors that influenced your decision. Um, specifically mm-hmm. this concept of a slippery slope, a slippery slope is a process or series of events that it's hard to stop or control once it's begun. And it usually leads to worse or more difficult things happening. Can you identify a point in time? Was there one thing or one place, one small action that you could go back to, um, that actually started you down the path of the slippery slope or what I've called wading into the gray. What's that one small thing that if you can go back in time to that point, um, maybe mm-hmm. it's with the developer, maybe it's before that, um, that mm-hmm. would have changed your trajectory? Yeah, I mean, I would say that the, that the very first inflection point is the day that I met the developer. You know, the developer 
discussed what he wanted to do and how he was going to do it and that he was moving his files from a big law firm to me, which clearly are red flags and I should have my, the hairs on my neck stood straight up then. Uh, why is he moving from a big firm to me? But I think that day that I met the developer, I, I remember going into the conference room, the side office at the time and calling my underwriting counsel and, and walking through what this developer was asking me to do and could I work with this developer and could I get approval? And, and you know, I, 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 like you mentioned, I didn't ask the hard questions, the ones that would have made you know, made me not get this client. I didn't, I was very vague in how I described what was going to happen. And I just wanted to, I wanted to say just enough that on paper it could get approved without having to disclose all the background stuff. And that allowed me not to ask the questions and, and allowed me to get the, the files approved uh, to, to, to move forward. And I think that that one beginning point clearly was was the beginning of the downside for me because I had already started down a path of blindness and, and purposely leaving things out. And that's, um, that would, I, I would say is, is the most important inflection point. I mean, there's several others after that. There's several indications and emails and phone calls that I received that I could have been uh, a lot more aware of and paid more attention to. And I didn't. And so, um, so talk for a yeah. second about what, what you've described to me before as the, the Christmas Eve email, um, because okay. I, I think any working parent, any working person with obligations outside of work has had that moment where um, they have, they're caught in a place where they have two things that they absolutely have to do. Um, so talk a little bit about that moment in time, what was going on and what your decision was there and how that affected you. Okay, sure. So, um, as I mentioned, I met the developer in October. It was about mid-October 2007, and within two weeks, I had my first uh, closing request. And it was it was it was a really fast uh, lead up, I and mean, it was really really fast on how many how many and how quickly I started getting these closing requests. So it was it was a lot of work, really fast, uh, with, with not a lot of you know uh, staffing that I had in my office. So I remember. Um, I was always trying to multitask and, and manage stuff at home and running my business and making that client happy. Uh, so on December 24th at about 8 o'clock p.m. that year, 2007, um, it, was, it happened to be a year where all of my family, meaning like from all over the country, aunties and uncles and cousins, nephews, nieces, sister, everybody came into Miami, descended into Miami for a family reunion. And, and, it was about eight o'clock, so I was in my kid's bedroom. They were sharing a room at the time. And I remember like the crib was on one side and the, the toddler bed was on the other. And I was sitting in the middle uh, trying to sing them to sleep and coax them to sleep. And, and I get this email on my BlackBerry. So I looked down and uh, the, the email was from a realtor about a closing that was happening in two days. And uh, in the email was one line and one attachment. And the line read something like, buyer to receive $72,000 uh, in rental guarantee after closing. And, you know, my guy, you know, first of all, I've like gone back and realized that was a major red flag because buyers in a real estate transaction are never supposed to receive a financial benefit when purchasing a property. And this was a, we're not talking $500. This is $72,000. And so, you know, I knew this in my gut. I knew it was wrong, but I also knew that we were documenting it with, you know, guarantees and that was being submitted, you know, 
in some way indirectly being submitted to the lender. Uh, and so I, you know, I knew it was wrong, but it was like my kids weren't sleeping yet and the house was full of relatives and it was almost Christmas morning. None of my Christmas presents were, pat- were wrapped and, and I just quickly ended up forwarding the email and I, I rationalized the whole thing, the email, the attachment, what the line, everything, I rationalized it, making it somehow acceptable and thereby legal in my mind and, and you know, of course, therefore ethical. Uh, and I forwarded it to my closing coordinator and I really just kind of expected her to, uh, to let me know if there was a legal lapse in the document and to, I was passing on ultimately was my, what was my responsibility and assumed it would be fine. And really that one email ended up being some of the main evidence against me, um, during the indictment from the indictment phase. So, you know, it's a, it's a really perfect example that, you know, these red flags, these warning signs, these you know, gut feelings that you have show up sometimes and oftentimes at the worst possible time. Clearly, definitely when you're not paying attention to details or, you know, have other things and pressures that you have in your life that affect how much, how much attention you're paying to your job or to an email. Uh, and it's just so easy to, to quickly forward something and not read it. I didn't even open the attachment. That's how, um, you know, light-handed I was being with, with these things. So... So let's talk about some of the other factors that contributed to um, your choices. There's this concept of loss aversion um, that talks about that people are will engage in more risky behavior when they're faced mm-hmm. with losing something as compared mm-hmm. when they're faced with the opportunity to gain something. By way of example, um, somebody might... Uh, lie about something to keep their job where they wouldn't necessarily lie about something to get the job in the first place. There's this idea that if you have something, you're vested in it, you need to keep it and you don't want to lose it um, over and above gaining. So if this concept of loss aversion, did it play at all into uh, some of your decisions? Well, yes, definitely. I mean, loss aversion, the, the, obviously the main thing I did not want to lose was the client. I, I so desperately wanted the client from the beginning that I was I was willing to do anything to get the client, keep the client, and keep working with the client because ultimately that meant financial stability and the ability for me to be you know spend more time with my children who were so young at the time. And so uh, I didn't want to lose a client. I also didn't want to lose stature in my community. You know, by then I had I had been used to and accustomed to a certain style and level of living. Uh, and I certainly was trying to achieve more, and I was definitely very stuck into that um, supposed level of success that you know people all attain and try to get to. Uh, and and I didn't want to lose um, the money that I had made from it, and the and the the credibility that allowed me the opportunity to then go market myself to other developers and other big clients. Not that I had this one client, so so there was a lot that was wrapped into it in terms of loss aversion. Uh, so. Thanks, Rashmi. Um, there's a terrific article by two um, academics, Anne Tenbrunsel and David Messick, called Ethical Fading, the Role of Self-Deception in Unethical Behavior. In that article, they say, quote, we are creative narrators of stories that tend to allow us to do what we want and justify what we've done. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about some of the ways that you justified your own conduct as it was occurring? Well, like I said, you know, I was, 
I was rationalizing and made a lot of assumptions. So I assumed that all the other big developers or many of the other big developers across the country, but certainly in South Florida, were doing something similar to what this smaller developer was doing that I was working with. Um, that also meant that I assumed that the bigger firms representing those bigger developers were also approving and closing those types of deals. And so I assumed that while those big firms wouldn't clearly wouldn't be engaging in these types of transactions unless it was legal and okay. And so somebody must have already done the legal analysis and due diligence and cleared, cleared, cleared it so that it's fine. And, and so that, that's a huge um, misconception, I think. As, and as a young lawyer, solo practitioner, young mom, with all these other pressures, it's so, it was so easy for me to make that assumption, rationalize it away, and then not spend the time doing my own due diligence. Uh, and that was clearly one of my biggest downfalls is that I didn't do my own research. I didn't check for myself. Um, I also think, I mean, it's interesting because I remember one time I was trying to market myself to another developer because um, now I thought, oh, I have this one developer. I'm going to go try to market myself to other developers with this creative transaction that we're doing and try to get more business, right? Now I have more credibility. So I remember this one developer said, uh, okay, well, it's interesting. Why don't you talk to my attorney and, and let, let me get his viewpoint on it. So I remember I met, I met with the attorney and described the transaction, showed him the documents that would be used in terms of making making it flow. And the next day I got an email from the, from the attorney who, by the way, was much more experienced than I was and, and a lot, had a lot of um, background in transactions and with working with developers. And so he sent me this email and in the email he essentially said that what I was doing was mortgage fraud. And I remember getting the email and yeah, you would think the hairs on my neck would stay, stand straight up or at least I would start looking a little bit deeper into what I was doing or give it a second thought. And, you know, I didn't even call him. I did not even think that I should reflect upon what he said. I didn't give it any uh, credence at all. In fact, I filed the email away and in my, to my, in my head, from a very cocky standpoint, I thought, I'm smart and I'm, I'm younger and I think outside of the box and I'm creative and he's just an old timer. He does not, you know, creative enough and he doesn't understand how things are done these days. And I just dismissed it. You know, it's just so easy, I think, in our lives to dismiss uh, dissension when it comes up um, without really examining what's, what comments are being made objectively on their merits. Because the thing is, the dissension will come and sometimes doubters are wrong, but oftentimes, uh, and it's our, I think it's our responsibility to actually to, to really examine comments like that or emails or information that comes in that doesn't seem to jive with what our goals are and our beliefs are and what we're trying to get to. And anything that happens to challenge that, it's so easy to just discard it because it's just inconvenient. Um, but really, we have a responsibility to focus in and make sure that, th that the dissension is wrong. Because sometimes, like as in my case, he was right. And had I just taken the time to, you know, I wish I would have taken the time to talk to him because I, you know, might have made some different choices. Um, do, you think, so. do you think that if you had gotten that email and that advice before you had taken some of your actions, so before you had taken that small step into the gray, if the advice mm -hmm. had come on the front end, that you might mm -hmm. have heeded the advice or you might have looked into it or you might not oh, I have taken so. those steps? <laughs> I hope so. I mean, who's to say? I think one of the things I have recognized is that as young lawyers, um, and it's not just limited to the legal field. I mean, I think across the board, corporations and, you know, all industries, I, I think the, the 
the idea of ethics principles and behavioral ethics training and um, all the things I now have learned subsequently, of course, I've tried, I've learned and, and done research to learn about understand why I did what I did. But I think I know as a young lawyer for me, I never really had any professional ethics training outside of studying for the professional responsibility quiz that we have to when you're, you know, just out of law school. Um, most entities, law firms, corporations don't put a lot of emphasis on this type of uh, training and, and teaching. And I, I, I do believe that that's changing over the last year or so. There's definitely been a shift, I, I would say, across industry. Uh, but I also believe it can't just be a one-time thing. It can't just be an annual thing, although obviously that is, is a minimum that you got to do. But I, I do believe it's an ongoing um, conversation. So one of the things I've said is we have to create a culture of conversation around this topic, around engagement and communication and cr- um, compliance and ethics, and where where we're examining from a 360-degree level what's going on with our team, what are the influences that they're facing and factors that are affecting their decisions so that it's constantly being discussed and in, in a very open and transparent way so that there is a better culture around us to to create a more, you know, ethical decision-making process daily within our, within our organizations. You're a big proponent of ethical vigilance. What do you mean by the term ethical vigilance and how do you, how do you counsel companies to put that into practice? So I really believe that ethical vigilance is 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 a commitment to um, to, to ethical decision making, and so um, I, I've suggested five keys, uh, five different steps for that. Um, one is, and it's it's not rocket science, but it's it's something that I think has to be put into practice and really allows to be put into practice and. That is to um, first pause and really take the time. This is key because if you don't pause, uh, it's hard to get off that race course, like I said. So pause. The second is to listen to your inner voice because there's always that gut-wrenching feeling that as you're starting and trying to make that decision, like, okay, what am I trying to say? You know, what what is this decision? It doesn't quite feel right. Um, and so once you've listened to your inner voice, inner voice then you have to reflect and, and, and take the time to meditate, close your eyes, and, and think through uh, what is your gut telling you. Once you've meditated on it, you can do an ethical reality check, and that's you know, deciding, is this the right decision? Uh, you know, and then you make the best conscious decision that you can. Um, and so there's this ethical imaginary line that is always there, and we have to choose to stay on the right side of that line. Um, and do what's right because we do all, you know, we all grow up wanting to try to do the right thing. And, and like me, sometimes we go off path, but there is a sense for most of us of what's right and wrong. Uh, and then the key is you have to make these decisions without considering uh, no matter the consequence because in life, in business, in relationships, we might lose uh, a job, a client, money, an opportunity any sort of material thing, but then also family, like a relationship or a friend or a spouse. And, and we have to be willing to, to lose something if it means doing the right thing, because down the road, ultimately, uh, it ends up being worth it. So I would say, you know, the ethical vigilance is an active commitment to ethical decision making. And when we can, you know, learn to learn, learn the tools of ethical decision making, you know, follow these steps, that all of that leads to ethical vigilance. And I think our corporate cultures, 
sorry, let me say, I was going to say, I think our corporate cultures, organizational cultures, all of us have the ability to instill this and infuse our organizations with this commitment to ethical decision-making, which then will, will allow us to be ethically vigilant as entities. Rashmi, you also talk about this concept of what, your concept of ethical, an ethical buddy system. Can you right. talk a little bit about that concept and overlay it, or does it overlay into the, the five-step process you've just talked about? Where does the ethical buddy system fit into the process you've just talked about? Right. So I think that the five steps really is a personal, um, it's a personal uh, examination process for our own ethical decision-making process. But then when you infuse that and, and extrapolate that to an organization, um, I believe every organization should have some sort of ethical buddy system. And so where I got this is because I was a solo practitioner and I, I do believe that I was making decisions in a silo and that caused a lot of problems for me. I had nobody to uh, not only play devil's advocate, but I had nobody to go and seek guidance from. I had nobody to, to that, that knew the context, context within which I was making these cho- decisions, meaning what was going on, what was the developer asking, what were, the, what were types of transactions were these, what's the end goal, uh, but also somebody who's vested in me in my success and well-being. Um, there, I think that when you have in a larger organization, uh, it's easier to do this than when I, in my sense, when I had a smaller setting. Uh, in a smaller setting, I think um, we have to actively seek out you know, somebody to mentor us and be an ethical buddy. But I think within our larger organizations, there is a chance and a capability of, you know, whether it's it's pairing up people or or not, I think the same five-step process can then, once you've done it internally on your own, should be done from our individual department level and really discussed and ongoing discussed. You know, so just like you have... Um, you know, weekly meetings about cases and case progress. I think that that ethical decision-making concept should be then discussed uh, with at least one other person as it relates to the decisions that are being made regarding a client or or a product or uh, or anything. Even within our university systems, as we all well know, there's a lot of issues regarding um, ethics and ethical decision-making and how things are being done within our university systems and government systems, you know, it's just kind of all over the place. But um, I do think there's an overlay, but it has to start individually, and then it can go outwards uh, with an ethical buddy helping you make some of those decisions. When, when again, can you talk a little bit about just the date on when you met the developer? Was that, did you say October 2007? Yes. Okay. So October 2007, you meet this developer, and you start down this path. It was October 2016 when you and I met and we started talking about, like, how do we help people make more ethical decisions, better decisions? Mm-hmm. What I'd like you to talk a little bit about now is during that time and during that very long journey for you, can you talk a little bit about some of what you lost? And then, of course, we're going to talk about some of what you've gained during that journey. So talk a little bit about some of the consequences and some of what you lost during that journey? Oh, God. So, I mean, I've lost on paper and professionally a lot. Of course, I've lost uh, everything I worked so hard for, which was my bar license, uh, which I did a voluntary revocation of in December 2014. 
So in December 2019, I will be eligible again to reapply to the bar in Florida and take the exam if I so choose. Um, but that was obviously the hardest because it was a you know loss of ability to make income, loss of use of my education and, and everything else I worked so hard for. Um, ultimately, I lost my husband and I lost our marriage because, uh, well, we already had problems, as I had already indicated, but uh, being and going through something like this makes it very difficult to focus and, and, and rectify and reconcile an uh, already troubled marriage. Um, I lost a lot of um, sleep. <laughs> I, I clearly lost my freedom, right? So I lost, um, I was gone, I ultimately was gone for six months, which I recognize is, is not a lot of time compared to many people, but frankly, one day is too long to be away from your kids when it's forced. Um, so I lost my freedom, um, you know, so I lost my ability. And I lost my ability to earn income in many ways. Right now, I'm very limited on how I can um, earn income. I'm not allowed to work in law or real estate, uh, even all the speaking engagements I do for another nine months or so, I, I do it, um, I waive my fee and I and I do it for cost because um, that's what's been rolled on and so hopefully that'll change next year, but you know, that's a loss of income for me. Um, and, and you know, when I travel, which I do travel a lot and I'm blessed to be able to do that um, and I'm honored to be invited to many places, but when I travel, I have to seek approval. So there's a little bit of, I mean, it's just a logistical thing, but it, it you know, it's, 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 it's a limitation on what I'm allowed to do and I have to go get approval and it's, it's like being a kid again, you know, you have to go get permission to do things. Uh, uh, so I, and I have to, I still have certain things I'm required to do under supervised release, which is. Um, I have to submit an online monthly report. I, like I said, I have to seek travel approval. Um, I had to complete 200 hours of community service, which, as I indicated, I've always been really involved with community service and love to give back, but it's, it's a little different when you're forced um, to go to a specific place on a specific day and, you know, put in a certain number of hours. It's just obviously a very different feeling, which, so I did that. Um, and I also uh, have a very large restitution judgment against me. Uh, which is concocted by some very odd formula <laughs> that the government uses, but uh, I currently owe a very large restitution judgment um, to my victims uh, in the case, which officially were Bank of America Chase and Wells Fargo. So those three victims get uh, a monthly check from the clerk on my behalf that I submit um, every month. Uh, and um, so that's, I would say that, you know, that's what I've lost. Obviously, I lost time with my children and the ability to be present uh, with them. But I gained, I would say, uh, I've gained so much more in other ways. And, and it's interesting because uh, oftentimes I tell people now that I'm happier than I ever have been or thought I could be. Uh, I believe it starts with the fact that I took ownership. Um, because I took ownership and took responsibility for what I did, I, um, it's been very freeing to live completely transparent and vulnerable all the time. Uh, and it's, not easy, but I, I really work very hard to, um, to be raw in every moment as I am on this podcast, like really to share the lessons I've learned, the moments, uh, the difficult moments that I made some bad choices because we all could be there. And I think it's important for other people to learn from my lessons. Uh, so I live my life in, 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 in vulnerability, and that actually gives me a lot of strength. Um, my children are amazing. I um, Thankfully, they were surrounded by love when I was gone, but uh, I believe I'm a better mom because, I, because of what I went through. Um, I don't think I was a bad mom before, but I certainly have a different perspective now. You know, my focus is really different. I, 
um, no longer am so focused on uh, on the things like you know the cultural level of success that we all get stuck on. I think I'm I'm more recognizing of of the smaller things and and the time spent and the relationships built and you know what you're giving back to your community and those real lessons. Um, I also would say that I've gained uh, an, an incredible amount of of new friends and relationships and sort of a new path for myself. It's amazing how I've been able to reinvent uh, what I want to do going forward. And, you know, I, I, people ask me all the time, are you going to try to get your license back? And I, I probably will because, you know, at least I'll try because I, I think it's important and I work really hard for that. Uh, I, I don't really want to, I, I think, ever practice law again. It's it's more for the legitimacy, you know, credibility of getting back what I lost. But but I really, uh, that this the ability um, and opportunity that I have to help others through my story. Uh, and, and frankly, every time I speak, I learn something else about, you know, myself and about how I can help others. And, you know, I'm able to brainstorm sometimes on, wow, you know, there's this aspect of my, of my journey that I haven't even thought about, but I could really apply that and help an organization. So an example of that is, for example, crisis communication. Somebody recently said to me at a, one of the top four, you know, accounting consulting firms recently said, you know, the way you've handled and, and, and kind of overcome this adverse life experience for you, that crisis com- communication side of what you've done is actually very valuable, which is not something at all I had thought about. It all really comes back to transparency, which is all ethics, but it's a totally different slant on anything I had been thinking. So it's just an example of how every day there's something new that comes up and I think, well, yeah, oh my God, that's something else I could be talking and thinking about and helping people with. So uh, it's pretty amazing to be able to help people and, and the comments and feedback I get every time I speak uh, is, is incredibly humbling. Um, and just the and fact that people call me inspiring and motivational, is really, it's, it's pretty amazing. Uh, and I'm just telling my story, <laughs> just being honest about what happened. So, well, I, I've actually been there many times when you've told your story and we've spoken at events together and you have inspired and you have impacted and you have motivated so many people with your story. Oh, it's really, you. it's really impressive and, and I'm honored to be a part of um, speaking with you uh, here on mm-hmm. this podcast and, and elsewhere. Um, Thank you. So how, how can somebody take sort of the lessons that you've learned and, and use your lessons um, so as not to have to live them themselves. Um, are there ways um, that are there ways that that companies can incentivize their employees uh, to act ethically um, as opposed to what we usually see, which is the profess- the, the pressure to perform um, by incentivizing monetarily um, and to be successful. So how do you incentivize an employee to act ethically as opposed to incentivizing an employee to be successful monetarily? So I do believe the ethical body system plays into this because especially for a corporation that has evaluation you know, systems that play into merit-based raises or, you know, increases in bonuses. Um, When you begin to think about how to incentivize an employee, I think um, the speak-up culture, the ability to have these open conversations uh, where there's no, you know, pushback or there's no um, retribution for coming up and speaking out or, or, 
saying, I'm not going to work with this client or I'm not going to accept this client. I mean, those are all things that rather than being looked down upon, have to be recognized by the organizations from a monetary standpoint so that it does incentivize um, employees to recognize when something's being asked of them, either by a client or a colleague or a supervisor, frankly, um, that that doesn't seem quite right. And doesn't mean that they're always that person or that employee will be right all the time in, in saying something. Meaning maybe their perception was a little skewed and they just need to be, it just needs to be talked through. But I think that most people are often, again, because of this loss aversion mentality, most people don't want to lose the opportunity to continue to work where they're at. So they don't say anything. And then they end up getting caught up in um, bad, bad, bad acts. And there's a, many examples of people um, that I, that you and I both know personally who that happened to. They were stuck in a business or in a job situation where uh, they just thought they were doing their job and they were being told what to do and they ended up in prison or they ended up getting caught for something that they really didn't intentionally go into doing. So I think when you begin to incentivize employees on the opposite side, that like if they're feeling in their gut, again, it comes back to the red flag in your gut or an external red flag. Like when you get that feeling, we have to be incentivizing um, by having the opportunity to talk about it, having it within our evaluation forms, you know, is there something that we need to discuss? Is there something that's come up? And all of that has to be obviously confidential because if there's there's any fear or sense that um, it's not either anonymous or that it's not something that can be kept confidential and openly discussed without retribution um, or fallout, then 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 it's not going to have the effect that we want it to have. So I, I think it takes a lot of thinking through, but the ethical body system would help and in, in allowing the opportunities for feedback to come in and channeled in the right way um, to management and executives and, and, and the monetary compensation structure, bonus structure, however you, you want to call it, of an organization. Rashmi, I want to thank you because your discussions and your going out and speaking about ethical vigilance, about the ethical buddy system, and being transparent and honest and raw and authentic in your own story has really given so much to this conversation um, and helps companies and employees learn so much about what the right thing to do is and how to make uh, good ethical decisions. I want to thank you on behalf of Rain for telling thank your you story so and sharing, sharing it with us today. So thank you very much. And I look of course, forward to the next you. time. I look forward to the next yeah. time we, you and I get a chance to speak. Definitely. Thank you, Serena. Thank you to Rain Network for having me, and I look forward to more conversations and collaboration going forward.